even now, sweet Jesus, even now, even now, for I ask this in your name, amen. God be praised. What a delicious, delightful privilege it is to be uh, with you uh, today, my brothers and sisters. We will be spending eternity together, so it's about time for some of us to get to know each other. It's good to be here. Thank you, Dr. Ashford, and, and uh, all of those who have hosted me. There are too many already for me to uh, remember names, so you know who you are. Thank you so much. This is a reunion. I've seen some of my former students, my son, uh, and the person of Griffin Gulledge, and Brother... Um, Tom and others who are here, thank you so much for receiving me. Psalm 23, Psalm 23. I believe that the greatest obstacle to the knowledge of the Bible is the knowledge of the Bible. What keeps many of us from knowing more about the Bible than we know about the Bible is what we think we already know about the Bible. And therefore, we have become, if you will, residents of scripture instead of tourists. We've seen it all. There's nothing that God can say to us that's new and different. There's no facet of the diamond of the text that can provide radiance and illumination for us. But I hope this will not be the case. It's a familiar text, but I hope that that which is familiar will become unfamiliar, and that which is common will become uncommon, and that which is mundane will become majestic, and that which is simple will become stupendous, so that you will say, Sing it over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life, words of life and beauty. Teach me faith and duty, beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Psalm 23 and the emphasis on the neglected God. Raised up in the church where the King James Version was the Bible, it was good enough for Paul and Silas and Good enough for Hebrew children. Good enough for my mother and father. Good enough for me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anoints my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to convey today that those who trust the Father as shepherd are empowered by the Spirit of Christ to live a life of tranquility in the midst of turbulence. Those who trust the Father as shepherd are empowered by the Spirit of Christ to live a life of tranquility in the midst of turbulence. If that sounds biblical, if that sounds right, I want you to repeat it after me. Now, if this is heretical, then don't do it. But if it sounds right, those who trust, repeat it after me, those who trust, now, this is, this is an opportunity for you to be involved in African-American um, 
kind of back and forth, if you will, call and response. Those who trust the Father as shepherd are empowered by the Spirit of Christ to live a life of tranquility in the midst of turbulence. The triune God is replete with his presence in Psalm 23. In fact, Psalm 23 is pregnant with intra-Trinitarian presence. The Father is there. In fact, you can't even open the Psalm without acknowledging the Father. The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. You cannot close the Psalm without ending with Yahweh the Lord. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord, Yahweh forever. So Yahweh the Father bookends the psalm. If you want to have a successful life, you really do need to begin with God. You need to end with God and God has to be all the way throughout the psalm and throughout your life. So the Father is present explicitly. The Son is present implicitly. His name is not mentioned at all, but he is there. It is Philip Melanchthon in his 1521 Losi Communes, Commonplaces, who says to know Christ is to know his benefits, his benefits, that is his attributes, that is his characteristics, that is his traits. So when you know what Christ does, then you can see that he's moving and doing what he does even though his name is not there. All of us know that there are 10 chapters in the book of Esther and God's name is not mentioned one time. But I declare he is, as James Russell Law would say, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, but the scaffold sways the future. And behind the dim unknown stands God in the shadows, keeping watch above his own, so that he allows Haman to build gallows for Mordecai, knowing that those same gallows will be used for his own death. Christ is there. He fulfills the words in Zechariah 13 and 7. Smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And Jesus fulfills that when he's arrested outside of his praying ground in Gethsemane. Christ is present. He's the good shepherd. He even says in John 10 and 11, I am the good shepherd. Christ is present. For even Peter says in 1 Peter 5 and 4, he says, when the chief shepherd shall appear, we shall receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. And the Hebrew writer, I believe it was Apollos, but I can't uh, say that for sure. I like to think it was. Uh, but the, the Hebrew writer says to us in Hebrews 13 and 20 as he gives the benediction uh, to that good, great shepherd of the soul, Jesus. Christ is there implicitly. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, it is as if the vision and the voice is greatly reduced to the point that the mute button is put on and the screen shows a blank look. Where is the Spirit? I think that as Melanchthon has said in his 1521 Losi Communes, to know Christ is to know his benefits. The same thing can be said about the Spirit. To know the Holy Spirit is to know his benefits. So the Spirit is there by necessity. You know, I, uh, 
actually concerned about the lack of inter-Trinitarian presence in our worship, in our teaching, etc. When I was a little boy in our Gospel Pearls paperback book, the very first song that was on page one was the doxology. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our songs shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. No, I don't understand the Trinity. I do understand this, that mathematically, when you add one God as Father plus one God as Son plus one God as Holy Spirit equals three, and God is not three persons. But if I say one multiplicationally times one times one, God is Father, times God is Son, times God is Holy Spirit. One times one times one equals one. And what God does is to multiply himself. Oh, that's not explaining Trinity, because God is ineffable. You can't even speak about him. His ways already past finding out, but we need to be intentional about intra-Trinitarian presence. I like the five solas. Sola Christo by Christ alone. And you hear that great word in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Sola fide, by faith alone. And you hear that great word in Romans 5 and 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that great word, sola gratia. By grace alone, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace are ye saved through faith. And yes, that great word, sola scriptura, and Jesus tells us, quoting from the Old Testament, of course, in Matthew 4 and 4, man, humanity shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. All of that for one purpose, soli deo gloria to the glory and for the glory of God alone. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. But I, I want to add one. I want to, because it's there, the reformers have it there. I, I, I'd like to see a sixth sola. Solu spiritu, by the Spirit of God alone. And Paul says this is so important that he says in Romans 8 and 11, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ is none of his intra-Trinitarian presence. John Newton, who writes the great hymn that we sing, Amazing Grace, has said that since there is no jealousy in the triune God, it is impossible to overpraise the Son or dishonor the Father and the Spirit in the adoration of Christ. There is no such thing as Trinitarian turf wars. In fact, Jesus in Philippians 2 and 5, he who was in the image of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, a thing to be competed for, or grass. Instead, what he did was to canonically empty himself and became a doulos, a slave, was in the form of man and was obedient to death, even the most ignominious, brutalizing death there was, death on the cross. Oh, brothers and sisters, intra-Trinitarian presence is pregnant throughout this particular song.
Jonathan Edwards, who is reputedly the greatest Protestant theologian ever to emerge from American soil, has said, God has forever known himself in a sweet and holy society as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Forever known himself. The Spirit does not just show up for the first time at Pentecost. He's in the very second verse of the Bible. And the Spirit of the Lord moved, hovered, brooded upon the face of the water. Mm. And Christ didn't just show up at Bethlehem. He's in the conversation. In Genesis 1, 26, and God soliloquizes his sovereign self. He talks to himself because there's no one else to talk to. And God said, let us make man in our own image. I tell you, brothers and sisters, even in this arm, the Spirit of God is present. To know the Spirit is to know his benefits, his characteristics, his attributes, his traits. What does he do? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me. Hmm. Because one of the properties, one of the traits of the Spirit, according to John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth has come, he will lead us, he will guide us into all truth. He leads us, leads us beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. That is, he convicts us when we are not in the paths of righteousness, wagon tracks of truth. And John tells us in John 16 and 8 that when the Spirit of truth has come, he will convict the world of sin, of judgment, and of righteousness. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. What does the Spirit come to do? He comes to be the public relations manager, the promoter of Jesus Christ himself. That is his, that is his role. And when you hear Jesus talk about the Spirit in John 15, 26, he says, when the Spirit comes, he will not testify of himself. He'll testify of me. And in John 16, 14, he says, the Spirit will come. He will not glorify himself. He will glorify me. So any preaching that says it's expository, that does not magnify and exalt and give glory to Jesus is not expository. Expository preaching manifests and uplifts and exalts in the joy of the Lord himself, the Spirit. Jesus takes and tells us as we look at what this psalmist tells us, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1 and 7, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love, of power, and of a sound mind. I fear no evil because you are with me. And the spirit does more than just be with us. Listen to the words of Jesus once again in John 14, verse 17. That when the Spirit has come, he will not only be with you, but he'll be in you. And Graham Lotz, the daughter of Ruth and Billy Graham, has said to us that God as Father is Spirit. He's God without skin because God is Spirit, John 4, 24. But Jesus as Son is God with skin. And Jesus says of himself as he speaks to John who writes about him, about the Incarnation, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But the Holy Spirit is God who gets inside of our skin. He lives in us. 
so much so that we become the receptacle, we become the body of Christ who lives in us. And then Paul, then the, the psalmist moves on and says at the end of verse number four, he says that we will not be afraid for his rod and staff, they comfort us. That's the spirit. He does bring us comfort. He brings us comfort by abiding with him. He is our paraclete. He is someone who comes along a side of us. And the Bible teaches us in John chapter 14, verse 16, where Jesus says, I'm going to give you another comforter. And there are two Greek words for comforter in the New Testament. One is heteros. That's not the word Jesus used. I'll give you a heteros comforter, someone different than me. Oh, no, no. He uses the word alon. I'll give you another comforter. That is, someone just like me, same usia, same essence, same presence, same properties. The only difference is I'm getting out of here. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to send him. He's not just going to be with you, but he's going to get in you. That's why we sing, he walks with me. He talks with me. He tells me I'm his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. And I'm looking at that clock. I believe it's demonic because it just keeps sticking and kicking time. But I got 32 minutes, so I'm going to stick to that. The Holy Spirit is present. I will leave it at that in this Psalm 23, the Lord is. E.V. Hill had been preaching in New York that week. It was now Saturday. He was tired. And he was flying back to Los Angeles to be with this congregation, the Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church. And he did not want to talk that day because he was tired. And uh, he decided the only way he could keep people from talking to him was to open his Bible. It really does work. I don't try for that reason, uh, but I notice that people won't say anything to you hardly if you have an open Bible. You have an open, any other kind of magazine or book is fine. But he, he just let it open to Psalm 23, and he started to read. By the time he got to L.A., which was about five and a half hours later, he got as far as is. The Lord is. That's as far. He got stuck on is. He couldn't get beyond is because it was a present reality with him. We are fine with the heretofore and we are fine with the hereafter. We struggle with the here and now. The Lord is. Our testimony needs to be updated. Not what he was and not what he will be because he never was and he never will be. He just is. He is the perpetual now. He doesn't have a past tense or a future tense. That's exactly why Richard Lisher in his book, The End of Words, uh, will take and deal with what Moses asked God. And Moses asked, Lord, if I'm going down to tell Pharaoh to let your people go, who should I say sent me? The Lord says, just tell him I am that I am. And Richard Lisher picked up on that. He said, now there's a noun and there's a verb, but no adjective. And how are you going to have a sentence with an adjective? And Richard Lisher said this, when you've got a great noun, you don't need an adjective. You're not going to find a greater noun than the Lord. I mean, the Lord is good. Well, Kentucky Fried Chicken is finger-licking good. You know, the Lord is. 
The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is my refuge and strength, of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, his truth endureth to all generations. The Lord is, don't tell me what he did for you down in South Carolina, in Mississippi, Alabama. Don't tell me what he did for you in Michigan. Tell me what he's doing right now. The Lord is. He got stuck on the isness of God. The Lord is. My shepherd, according to Sidney Gradanus, who taught at Calvin's College in his work on the Psalms, preaching Christ through the Psalms, he notes, and I've checked it out, it's true. There are 80 Psalms that deal with the relationship of the shepherd to the sheep, and 79 of them deal with that relationship in a plural sense. Only one deals with that relationship in a singular sense where the shepherd has been dealing with sheep. No, but this one has to do with the shepherd dealing with one sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. You got to get to the place where you are dealing with your one-on-one -on -one relationship. My shepherd. It is Job reminding us, God is my redeemer. I know that my redeemer lives and at the latter day, You'll stand upon the earth, and after the skin worms have divided my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall not behold another. The Lord is mine. Do you know the statement that Thomas makes in that 20th chapter of John when he sees Jesus, who has risen from the dead? He's been talking about, I won't believe till I see and till I blep, pick, and bellow, thrust my hand in his side. When he saw Jesus, the only thing he can say is, my Lord, my God, my God shall supply all of our needs according to his riches. You've got to get to the place where you become, in a selfish way, sanctified in your selfishness. He is my shepherd. He may be yours, but I got to talk about what he is to me. If I had time, I'd just go down this audience and all of you would have something to say. He's my healer. He's my redeemer. He's my restorer. He's my peace. He's my bridge over troubled water. Ah, because of your experience, you can talk about because of past experience, it gives me present confidence. We don't struggle with the Lord being our shepherd as much as we struggle with the shepherd being our Lord. There's the problem. He's my shepherd. I want him to be my shepherd. I want him to provide for me. Yes. But if the Lord, who is my shepherd, becomes a shepherd who is my Lord, then he not only orders my steps, he orders my stops. He gets in my business. He directs my ways. And the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, I shall not lack anything. The little girl was quoting this and she misquoted it, but her theology was solid. She said, the Lord is my shepherd. What more do I want? Now that's not what it says, but that's what it says. Because when he is your shepherd, there's nothing that you need that he doesn't have. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack anything. The sheep does not lack anything as long as the shepherd is leading them. Listen to this causative verb. He causes me, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He folds up my forelegs, bends them, and lays me down in green pastures. Not pastures of brown grass, but green grass and shady green water so rich and so sweet. God leaves his dear children alone. 
Where the cool waters flow, bathes the weary one's feet. God leads his dear children along some through the waters, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood, some through great sorrow. But God gives a song in the night season and all the day long, and he makes me to lie down in green pastures, even when I don't want to. I have a friend, thank God he's recovered, walking down the steps at the Mount Carmel Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, going to preach. I'd walked those steps many years, concrete steps. He happened to fall down, break ribs, break bones, legs, uh, broken, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What a price to pray, pay to preach. But when they began to operate on him, they discovered that there were cancer deposits in his leg. The Lord calls him to lie down in green pastures. Hath he not fallen? Then they wouldn't have discovered it. And if they had discovered it, it would have been too late. I know that there are things that happen in our lives and we wonder about it. Sir Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish theologian, reminds us life must be lived forward, but you can only understand it backwards. So some of those places where God vetoes, some of those prayers that God does not answer, you ought to thank God for because you pass by, you look back, and you see that God was arranging your life and what many meant for evil, Joseph's brothers, God meant it for good to save many people alive. He causes me to lie down in green pastures he leads me beside still waters. Sheep cannot drink rapidly flowing waters. They will strangle. Uh, but what a shepherd who is vigilant and watchful will do is come to a place where there are rapidly flowing waters and take large boulders and dam up a section so that inside the boulders is still water. And outside of the boulders, or rapidly flowing waters so that sheep can just come to the still waters and sip because he blocks out rapidly flowing waters so that they can have still water. We praise God for what God provides, and we ought to. But do you ever praise God for what he prevents? He has prevented so much by blockading so much so that when we get to heaven, the first billion years we're going to spend praising God for what he prevented. Too many dangers, toils, snares, we have already come. It was grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us on. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul. That literally means in Hebrew, he stands me back up on my feet. I sometimes think, of course, fancifully, playfully, I wonder, did God make a zoological mistake? You got this sheep of 100 and 150 pounds with two thick legs. God, couldn't you have given the sheep, you know, better uh, support in the terms of legs? Why you give the leg, give the, that kind of definition of the leg? And I went over to Scotland. We preached several weeks this past June, July. A lot of sheep over there, a lot of shepherds. And I asked them about this very same thing. I've been studying about it. I talked to people over here about it, but I talked to them. They said, yeah, says, um, a sheep can lose its balance and fall over. And if that sheep is not stood back up on its feet, the acidic gases in its abdomen can build up and lead to asphyxiation or strangulation. But a shepherd who is vigilant will take, stand that sheep back up on its feet. I wonder how 
you had to experience what God had to stand you back up on your feet. I'm talking about a financial reversal. I'm talking about a broken heart. I'm talking about a home situation that was detrimental. I'm talking about a church that may have disappointed you. I'm talking about where he had to stand you back on your feet and you wanted to quit, you wanted to give up. But he stood you back up on your feet. You're looking at someone that God has stood back up on his feet physiologically. I know what it's like to hear a diagnosis of cancer twice. I know what it's like to have a stroke. I know what it's like. And I'm here today because God stood me back up on my feet. And when you are here, when you have these kinds of experiences, whatever they may be, stop writing your benediction. Write your invocation. Stop putting a period there. Never put a period where God has put a comma. God is not finished with you yet. He will stand you back up on your feet and rewrite your life insurance policy, if it's real, like he did for Hezekiah and give him 15 more years. And he took and restored his nephesh, his being, his soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness, wagon tracks of truth. I'm talking about where there are grooves in the road and you know they lead to safety because that's where the tracks lead. When you read a place and places like Proverbs 14 and 12 and 16 and 25, there is a way that seemeth right unto a person, but the end thereof is the way of death. A shepherd knew that he was responsible to the over-shepherd. If he had a hundred sheep, he was expected to bring about a hundred so that he did not bring dishonor on the over-shepherd. That's one of the reasons why in Luke 15, verse number four, when this one sheep is lost, the shepherd leaves 90 and 9. I used to read that. I had the 90 and 9 left safely in the fold, in the barn, with fences around him. No, that's not what the text says. The text says, in the mountains, there are coyotes there, there are hyenas there, there are mountain lions there. What are you talking about, an economic liability? You're going to leave 99 in hopes of finding the one? And when he found that one, that one is wounded evidently because he has to carry it. And stop letting artists give you a misconstrual of this. This is a sheep, not a lamb. We always have nice little lamb. No, this is a sheep over 100 pounds. And God is trying to tell you, I risked it all in order to save you. And therefore... To bring that sheep back is to honor the over-shepherd. And David is saying to us today, when a bear ate, was, came to get one of my father's sheep, I killed the bear. And when a lion came to get one of my father's sheep, I killed the lion. That's what he told Goliath. And God will enable me to kill you, you uncircumcised giant. And God is so eternally interested in you that he's going to take you all the way because he says, whom the Father has given me, no one has been able to pluck them out of my hand. He's got you. He's going to keep you. He's going to bring you through. He leaves me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake, for his own glory. And my son made a terrible mistake as a teenager. He came home with a pair of K-Swiss gym shoes. I knew I couldn't afford it. And I asked him, where did you get them from? He knew better to, uh, to lie to me. He said, well, Daddy, I, 
took them from Gold Circle Mall. That's one of the malls in our area. I didn't pay for them. I took him back up there with Jews, had him to ask for the manager to come. He told the manager what he had done, presented the shoes to him. And um, I said, oh, just a moment, Mr. Manager. I took out my wallet. I gave him the money, put the shoes in the bag, we went home. Bobby just knew he was going to get whipped. <laughs> and he got whipped, but not with a belt. Not with a belt. I said, son, I'm the pastor in this community. What is it going to look like on me for you to represent our home and you're a thief? And I'm a pastor preaching, thou shalt not steal, and on and on and on. I love you. If I didn't have it, I'd get it for you, and on and on and on. I whipped him with grace. He had tears coming down his eyes. To my knowledge, he has never, ever stolen anything. And when he knew how much he hurt me, it served as a retardant for him doing that again. When I think about what God has done, rolled back the curtains of memory, showed me where he's brought me from and where I could have been, my greatest pain is that I would ever break the heart of my great shepherd. It's not the punishments. It's the fact that he would take his hands off of me so that the intimacy would not be the way it used to be. Never the relationship. I'm always his son, even though a prodigal, but the intimacy. Well, verse number four, something has changed. The temperature is different. It's in the evening. The, the, the terrain is different. He's walking in the valley. Uh, the time of the day is different. There are shadows there. And the Bible opens up in verse 4 and says, yea, even though, although. Because that's the kind of religion, or as my mama would say, that's the kind of religion we must have. And even though religion. Now, the shift has changed from verses 1 to 3 to verse 4. How did we get in the valley? We've been lying down in green pastures. We've been led by the still waters. Our soul has been restored. We've been led in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And now we're in the valley. How do we get there? The same shepherd that led us in those places is the same shepherd that will lead us there. Where do we get this kind of heretical theology? That we only have uh, a theology of glory, not a theology of the cross. Not so. There's Jesus standing in the baptismal place where John is baptizing him. He's the second person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is on his shoulder, the person of a dove, and God is broadcasting for all of us to hear, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the very next verse, Matthew 4 and 1, says, and Jesus was thrust out into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Because what we don't need is a theology of prosperity. We need a theology of adversity. Anybody can do well with adversity, with, uh, with uh, prosperity theology. But what do you do when you're in the clutches of adversity? And this is our preaching. We preach a theology of the cross, but it is also a theology of glory. Cross, resurrection, tribulation, triumph. Here it is, yea, though I walk through the valley. You've got to have an in spite of religion. You've got to be able to say like Job sometimes in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You've got to be able to say like Habakkuk in Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, if there are no cattle in the stall, if 
there are no crops in the field, if there are no figs on the tree, if there are no grapes on the vine, yet will I rejoice in God my Savior. You've got to be able to say, if the storms don't cease and the winds keep on blowing in my life, my soul is anchored in the Lord's. Yea, though I walk through, not around, not over, not under. I've been in the valley of the shadow of death. I've walked that place where David would lead his sheep. And uh, the terrain is not even at all. But you got to walk through it. Notice, walk through it. Because God tells us in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, when you, not if you, but when you walk through the rivers, I'll be with you. When you walk through the waters, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, they will not burn you. There's some valleys you cannot avoid, you cannot reschedule, you go through. You've got to learn to walk in the valley because he's not only the bright and morning star, he's the lily in the valley. He's with you in the valley. I learned a house in Cincinnati, Ohio. Our bedroom is on the second floor. We got some loose planks, squeaks, and uh, certain places, they squeak. So I had to learn how to walk um, at night without waking up my wife. So I learned how to walk during the day. Uh, it's about seven steps to go here, and then there's, okay, there, let's get there. There's mm -hmm. that one. Seventh, then I'm in bed. Mm. But I don't learn that at nights. I learned that during the day. And right now, you've got to learn how to walk in the night during the daytime so that when you have to face your nights, you can walk through the storm and walk through the rain, though your dreams be tossed and blown. Yea, though I walk through, not around, not over, the valley of the shadow, the shadow of death, which David had to face many times, death. David, he was uh, in talking with Jonathan. That word comes up in 1 Samuel 20, verse 3. There's only one step between me and death. Here's death, here I am. And what gets in between death and me is his grace. Not that you're so agile and careful and you are lucky because you wear a rabbit's foot. If the rabbit was that lucky, it would have its foot. No, you don't go by that. It's God's grace that has kept you. It's God's grace that is holding you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of Death, constantly faced with death from the onslaughts and the attacks of Saul. I will fear no evil. I don't deny that it's there, but I don't fear it. I am not paralyzed by it. Why? Now watch him. He changes tenses. When he is being led by the still waters, having his soul restored, and led in the path of righteousness for his name's sake, he uses third person singular. The Lord, he is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me to pass right for his name's sake. But when he gets in the valley, he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you are with me. Second person, singular. Your rod, your staff comforts me. You've got to get to the place where you stop talking about God. He is omnipresent. He is immutable. He is ubiquitous. He is infinite. That's all right when you're walking by still waters. But when you get in the valley of the shadow of death, you've got to stop talking about God and start talking to God. 
And that may mean that you tell God what you feel. God will give you the privilege of having the first word, but he reserves the last word for himself. He said, oh, no, I wouldn't say those certain things to God like that. He already knows it. Psalm 139 verse 2 says, he knows our thoughts are far off, which means before you even get the thought, he has already abducted and kidnapped the thought and interpreted the thought before you get the thought. So you just as go on, well as go on like we say in our little church, have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him all about your troubles. He'll hear your faintest cry. He'll answer by and by. Tell him what you feel. And Job will, for 35 chapters off and on, from Job 3 to Job 37, 35 straight chapters, just bellyache. But in chapter 38, God says, can I have a word? God speaks to him, 38, 39, 40, 41, four straight chapters. And then Job says, I heard of you with my ears, but I see you face to face. You know what God calls him in chapter 42? What he called him in chapters 1 and 2? My servant, Job. Because God is not fragile. God is faithful, and he wants us to start talking to him. And hear the psalmist, I will fear no evil because you're with me. Your rod, mm. And what the shepherd is really saying to the mountain lion and the coyote and the hyenas, you want some of this, this rod? This elongated bat that has metal and has uh, bone and has other sharp instruments that are lethal. You want some of this? I'm packing from a sheep. Come on. <laughs> and the Lord has a rod and staff that he leans on. He will comfort you. Now we go to verse 5. And I'm not going to be able to finish this, and I know that. I haven't finished the sermon for 54 years. I just stopped. <laughs> I just stopped. I just stopped. Because there's no end to it. We like to quote Psalm 23 this way. The Lord is my shepherd. Listen to the jubilation. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou with me. My rod and my staff that come for me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In other words, we want to bypass verse 4 to get to the table. But you can't appreciate the table unless you've been through the valley. God wants you to understand it's not only benevolence but malevolence that you have to deal with. He wants to take you through the valley so you can get to the table. You can have a testimony. There he is in verse 5. He prepares a table before me. That is the root word of panim, before the face, before my face. The shepherd is preparing a table, a provision of supply right in front of my face. So that in the 24th chapter of 1 Samuel, here is David hiding in the cave in the Engedi area and has no idea that Saul is going to come in that same cave to relieve himself. He's just a few inches away from David that he's seeking. And God does not allow Saul to discover David being just a few feet away. And God is preparing before David in the presence of his enemies, protecting him and keeping him. Do you know how close you've been to destruction? 
so close. And yet God protects you and God keeps you. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Let me go on. He anoints my head with oil. Back in that 16th chapter of 1 Samuel, Samuel anoints David because God says the eighth son, that's the one who's going to be the king. David is anointed before he's appointed. He's not appointed king yet. Saul has to uh, eventually die on Mount Gilboa. David is anointed but not appointed. And that's a struggle. When you know you've been anointed and you've been equipped, but you haven't been appointed. You get an MD, but you don't have a J-O-B. And that's really important. And God says, just wait. Stay in your position at church. You're tired of being the assistant. You're tired of being the apprentice. You're a better preacher. You think everybody else tells you, I'm a better preacher than my pastor. Stay where you are. Stay like you, stay there like you're gonna be there for the rest of your life. Be faithful. And in your own time, your anointing will be hooked up to your appointing. And God will place you where he wants you to be. Uh, those sheep would be anointed, hot oil that would be poured on their head where there were insects and pests. And that hot oil would uh, relieve them because of their sensitive uh, uh, membrane, but also kill the insects and the, the pests. Uh, just dripping all the way down. It just anticipates for me Ephesians 5.18. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. That's the idea. That's the pre present tense. Keep on being filled with the Spirit to the point that your cup runs over. And then he closes. Surely goodness and mercy. Surely told and hesed. Mm. She'll follow me. I used to preach this in goodness and mercy, told and hesed. They were always leading. And I was following them. But the Bible says... They follow me. They're behind me. I think that when we come to stand before God, uh, there's the temptation that we will think, well, God's going to turn me off, reject me, because I know strong in my back, uh, my background is all kind of sin. Uh, but when we look, we see nothing behind us. And God will have to remind us, I told you that goodness and mercy would follow you, cleaning up after you, picking up after you, sweeping away everything so that now... You and I stand before God, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. Uh, this psalm closes uh, with, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Before the shepherd came to the sheep's house, he came and made the sheep lie down in green pastures. But this text closes by saying that we're going to his house. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, we shall have a fellowship that shall never experience a benediction. A little girl who had a, a Down syndrome was in the line of young people who had memorized Romans 8, 38 and 39. And the teacher began to ask each one of them, what is it that you'll ever separate you from the love of God? And uh, Mary said, uh, I am persuaded that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, and nor depth shall be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Well, many of the young people showed off their oratorical gifts. Many of the young people showed off their retentive value. But when they came to this young lady by the name of Brenda. She had Down syndrome and everybody wondered how will she able, be able to quote this word and she stood there and they waited for her to recite this verse. She said when she was asked what shall separate you from the love of God? She said nothing. That was her word. Nothing and you may be able to recite the 23rd Psalm, but you've got to get to the place that you really know not only the Psalm, but know the shepherd. I'm glad today, I got one more minute, but I can say this word. One of these days, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death and God shall wipe away all tears from our eyes. The Lord is. The Lord is. <laughs>